Well, what's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Amy Charlotte Keane, best-selling writer and poet, director of innovation at a change consultancy called And Us over in London. How are you, Amy? I'm really good, thank you. Like a, like an eight out of ten. That's good. And I love the fact that you're about to go out this evening in, in your time zone because we're going to talk about some serious stuff and I want yeah. you to report back. Like how is your night going to have happened having talked about some serious stuff before you go out? It's going to be interesting, you know? Well, the problem is, so I've started to, I don't know how much of a drinker you are, Mark, but I've started to drink a lot less. So I drink like once every two weeks, but the unfortunate reality or the impact of that is that I get really, really, really drunk and have really terrible hangovers. So I generally these days feel quite scared <laughs> before I go out because I don't know what's going to happen. Mm, fast and early drinkers over there, I can tell you that much. And so let's chat. There's three things we're going to talk about today. I want to, I want to briefly okay. talk about the book that you've published. We're going to also mm. talk about your thoughts on mental health, something that you captured in a beautiful article a few months ago called Don't Tell Me to Talk, Teach Them to Listen, Why Mental Health Advertising Needs to Move On. And then we'll talk about dice as well. So mm. let's start with the book. It's got a casual, lighthearted name. It's called uh, The Little Girl Who Gave Zero Fucks. Mm-hmm. Is... Uh, is this something of an Amy Keane coming out story? <laughs> I wish. No, it's a, um, the more I think about it and the more I talk about it, the more I realize that I wrote it as self-help to help me because I still have to, and I'm being totally honest, this isn't just like a cheesy soundbite. I have to read this book to myself a lot of the time because anyone who knows me knows that I have historically given all the fucks. So I, it's written in verse. It's almost like a whole book of man, 80 pages worth of mantra, but I wrote it because I needed it to be written. And thank God I did because <laughs> it does help mm. for women, especially it helps. Yeah. And for, if you're curious about finding out about the book, it's at www.girlwhogavezero.com with zero being spelt, not just the number. And it's, I, love, I love the lead into it. It's, this is the story of a brave young girl, Elodie Rose, who one day decides to change the world and keep all her fucks in a basket. <laughs> You're allowed to say something there, Amy, but you know, you don't have to. I, I think it's really interesting. A lot, you know, a lot of, I know a lot of people want to write books and people are probably writing more books mm. than have ever been written. And yet a lot, of yeah. the, a lot of the people who want to write books aren't sure where to start. You know, write the book that you think you need, write it to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, yeah. Yeah. Totally um, legit. And the, so the whole basket thing, the more, the more I think about it, the more I think I am a genius. Because <laughs> obviously the basket is a metaphor for people's mental health um, and, and all the concerns and the worries that they keep in their head because the basket contains fucks and fucks are little creatures. For, it's different for every single person. So some people have unicorn-shaped fucks and some people have ones that look like cupcakes or puppies. But they represent a, a, a girl's self-esteem and what makes her happy and what makes her sad and what helps her dream. Um, and the reason... The thing that inspired me to write that and to use that, I guess it's a metaphor, is it? Was when I lived in Singapore, I had a confidence coach, which is a, you know, halfway through my career, a really weird time to have a confidence coach. And he gave me an analogy, a really nice analogy of a remote control. 
Mm-hmm. Everyone has a remote control and that remote control is covered in buttons, which represent all our emotions. And um, he said that I give my remote control away <laughs> to every single person I meet um, and told me not to. And that's why I was like, oh shit, that's what I've never thought about like emotions and stuff like that before. Um, every In the book, every time someone makes a girl unhappy or humiliates her or, you know, tells her that she's being too much, she has to give away a fuck from her basket. And at the end of every day, every little girl's basket in this fictional dystopian town is empty because they've given all their fucks away. Mm. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I think there's. I think the psychological concepts we're talking about here are yeah. one, empath- empathy, and two, agreeableness or disagreeableness. And, mm. I, and from what I can tell, those themes follow through in the mental health article that we'll discuss in a, in a second. Mm. Uh, why, why this book? Why this book? I'm sure you had many other ideas for books. Was there a particular incident that happened? How, why did it linger with you so long? So I, I had to write it because I kind of had no choice. So I've been working for like 15 years. I've been working in advertising for about 15 years. And um, it's, to be totally honest, it's always been my life. And to the extent that actually I've, I've made a lot of sacrifices because I've always wanted my work to be my life. It's where I've kind of built my sense of self. It's where I've, it's my achievement. It's how I kind of assess my own value is, is through work. And it's always been that way. And what happened when I, it was when I, I lived and worked in Singapore, I was head of strategy for Mindshare across the whole of APAC. And for a variety of different reasons, I just, work was not giving me that satisfaction and that enhanced sense of self and it wasn't making me feel good. I don't know if you've worked in a regional role. When you work, when you have like a global or regional role, it's incredibly lonely and it's quite thankless. You piss a lot of people off because you're the regional person flying in, telling them how to do a thing. So I actually noticed my my self-esteem and my happiness plummet. And so I had to find something else. I had to have a substitute. I had to have some kind of productive outlet that gave me that sense of kind of personal satisfaction i needed to achieve something so i wrote a book mm-hmm. i love that art is the way through that i think a lot of people yeah. bounce bounce around and they look for the next kind of piece of career materialism they can hang their hat on and sometimes yeah. you just need to sit down and write a book or do a painting or make some pottery or whatever it is that you're into yeah and they're like oh that felt good and also i think <laughs> what, what you're talking about it's interesting that uh the book is very much featured it's based around uh, young girls because from what I understand, having read the actual uh, initial paper on imposter syndrome or the imposter mm. phenomenon from Dr. Clance and also having heard psychologists talk about the big five personality traits, ocean, I won't bore everyone with that stuff, but the A in ocean is agreeableness. From what I understand, women do tend to ha- uh, be more agreeable to give their remote away more often and to not mm. think that is deserving of the things that are uh, often in the research is compared to white men who believe that they're deserving. Um, and so there's a whole, there's, there's a whole, but there's a whole bunch of dynamics there that are yeah. historically um, they've been researched and thought through. And, and so it's nice to see a, a voice burst through with such a uh, vulgarity, first of all. So congratulations <laughs> for that. But, but also with such, with such power because you have to, you know, I, I, 
um, and I'm a white dude, but I have given my room away to a lot of people as well mm. and suffer from empathy, and uh, which is not to mm. say sympathy and just doing what other people want all the time, but suffer a bit from empathy and agreeableness. And I, I have to, I've built my own language to myself to make myself care less uh, about oh. certain points of view as well. And so it's interesting to hear that you turn that into a book for me. Yeah. Oh, well, also the thing is, um, I have doubts about imposter syndrome in the way that it's been latched onto in recent years. I think we're, as a society, I'd love to know what you think, but I think as a society, we're far too keen to blame the individual and the fragility of an individual's brain and their insecurity and they need to fix it and they need to go to all these workshops to blah, blah, blah. Whereas actually, I think, because the reality is black women get imposter syndrome worse than white women do. And the reason why is because... Imposter syndrome, if we want to call it that, essentially it's a feeling of not being good enough, arrives because you've been made to feel that way. There is no other, it's, it's the external forces that have done that to you. It's the way that companies are structured. It's the way that people behave. It's the way, it's microaggressions. All of those things result in the feeling that you're feeling. Um, yeah. And so in the book, it goes through, it literally goes through. It's such an unremarkable story, <laughs> but told in a, in a colourful way. It goes through the average day in a life of a young girl and she's told about 17 times that she's not good enough, that she's too loud, that she needs to be thinner, that she needs to hold a boy's hand, that she needs to comply essentially or conform. Mm -hmm. That's why she feels that way. It's not because there's some magical thing that happens to people's brains throughout their careers or throughout their lives. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a cultural thing. I have a feeling some yeah. of it might be innate, uh, but it's largely yeah, a, like, yeah, yeah. a cu cultural thing. And I just think my, my concern with the imposter syndrome is that it's very easy to identify with. And if someone latches onto it, just go read the original research and see if it's really what you're about because mm. imposter syndrome, the original research talks about uh, it's, it's largely, it largely focuses on women and, and people of color, but it does focus on men just a little bit and talks about mm. how there's a need to feel like a superwoman or a superman, right? So that's, that on one hand sounds narcissistic. On the other hand, it sounds like this person wants to achieve a lot, right? So there's a, a, a kind of a shadow side and a bright side to, to all these things. Uh, yeah. Then they, they're working hard, they do well, they get into a position uh, that's good and they're waiting for a colleague to expose them as being a fraud. So there's some of the dynamics that are actually going on. If you just don't feel like you belong in a room, that's a different vibe, you know? Yeah, but, uh, yeah. That's all. It's, it's these ideas, I, I get nervous that they're easy. It's easy to latch onto them and then you repeat them to yourself too much mm. as opposed yeah. to like, you know what? I should actually go write a book <laughs> I should do something about it, as opposed to kind of wallowing, wallowing about it. Um, what was mm. the best thing? What's, what's, what was the best thing about writing this book? Well, the entire process, the best thing about the entire process was proving a hell of a lot of people wrong, which I love to do. It's almost nice being underestimated a lot because when you prove people wrong, it feels bloody lovely. After I produced it and I got it illustrated, I tried to get it published and I sent it to loads of literary agents, which is normally the, is the traditional way you do it. Really old fashioned way of doing it. There's a middleman or a middle woman that acts on your behalf to publishers when you write a book. I don't know if you did it. You've got a book out, haven't you? It's, kind of it's digressing. Coming. Sorry. 
No, it's cool. I like talking about books. It's coming. I've got my own <laughs> thoughts on it. But yeah, I want I want a direct relationship with my, my peeps. Yes, exactly. And so I sent it I sent it to loads of literary agents. Coincidentally, it was all women because I thought, you know, sisterhood, etc. And every single one of the literary agents, and this was like small, smaller ones representing more, you know, kind of independent presses and the and the big literary agents who've been around for decades, every single one of them said, I just can't see this selling. I don't know how it would resonate. I can't see it on a mainstream publisher's list. And of course, eventually it did get published and it is, it's been a number one and it sold loads of copies, nearly 10,000 now, I think, which is, which is pretty good going. Yeah, that's awesome. That is really good. Um, and so, so the best, thank you. The best part of the process is, fuck it, you know when you're, you know what, and this is an imposter syndrome thing because you, we rely so much on the opinions of experts we often get told that our ideas aren't good enough or that our ideas won't work. And what this has taught me is that actually everyone has to have more self-belief. If you think something, if you think an idea is good, there's probably something in it. Mm. Especially if you've worked and, in advertising uh, 15 years. <laughs> well, also, well, I think that, that some people might listen to you and I talking about this because you and I have both been in formal positions of power. We've, we've run mm. teams, had, had big titles and yet to hear yeah. two of us talk about this might be like people might think hang on you're coming from a different place to where i'm coming from but i I think the thing that i've had to really focus on is um the publishing and the writing i believe i need to do it and Mm. that's where i operate from and and then everything else is a creative constraint and uh Mm. i I have no intention of going through kind of traditional gatekeepers i I love being able to invent whatever it is that i need to do it doesn't mean that you're self-talks positive all the time. I mean, I don't know if you, if you felt this, but when I was going through about the <clears throat> sub-edit, I would just sit there and just like sigh and roll my eyes. And I'm like, <laughs> what the hell are you writing here? And I've read it. <laughs> yeah, I read it for, and, and then, you know what, three pages later, I'm like, oh, I like that paragraph. That's cool. Yeah. Keep going. <laughs> yes. Yes. You're a genius. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the point the, yeah. is, is to get onto the next book, right? Yeah. I want to, um, so, oh, I have a book coming out. I have a, um, there appears to be a theme in the stuff that I write, an accidental theme. I don't know whether you want to talk about this. This is a lot to do with mental health though. So my next book, which is coming out in May, May the 15th, is a poetry collection and it's called House of Weeds. And uh, it's basically all about mental health. It's it's about... uh, society's outcasts and society's rebels and people that are told throughout their lives that they're weird or they look weird or they act weird or their urges are weird using the using the characteristics of weeds as um a springboard for each one of the poems because what's what I felt and weeds are having a real weeds are quite on trend (laughs) and I hate myself (laughs) for saying that because it's awful and I sound like a really shit creative agency strategist by saying that um weeds are really interesting because hundreds of years ago someone probably a very posh person that worked in agriculture or botany decided that certain flowers were undesirable because they were then should be banished from the garden because they were unruly and rebellious and unpredictable but actually weeds are beautiful amazingly smelling flowers that 
everybody loves like poppies are a weed and ivy is a weed and fern is a weed and evening primrose is a weed and it's just a really interesting parallel with society and how we're so quick to write people off even though if someone's got a different brain to us and it might be rebellious and unpredictable or unruly or whatever it's still beautiful and so the entire poetry collection is about that uh it's it's a lot more serious than the little girl who gave zero fucks I like it. I like it. You've got a whole body of work coming together. For, uh, I, I, like, is this your life's work to kind of pick at these topics that are of uh, utmost importance to you and to do art around? Yeah. Is this, yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Can I tell you why um, I've decided to do this? Um, because, and this is what I want to, for most of my life, ever since I was a child, I know this isn't therapy. This is just a rationale. (laughs) Um, uh, I've been, I've been called weird by peers, by family, by friends, by, not by, you know, strangers on the street. That would be a bit much, but I've always been described (laughs) as weird and, and unusual, strange, peculiar, odd, the things that I say and the way that I behave. And, um, I write this stuff because I want to be more comfortable with my existence. I know that sounds really dramatic, but it's the reason I wrote The Little Girl Who Goes Zero Fucks, which is basically about being yourself and, and not caring. It's the reason why I've written House of Weeds is that I, I, I want there to be more stuff out there about being weird. Being weird and that being beautiful. Um, so yes, yes, to answer your question, absolutely. So how do you, okay, I, I, I want to bring it back a little bit to like yeah. strategy and, and agency world. Uh, yes. what, what I've noticed, so every now and then I'll talk to people either trying to get into a strategy role uh, or into a better strategy role and I'll read the CV, I'll see the portfolio and I might mm. know what's weird about them, but, mm. but I, don't see it. I don't see it in how they're presenting themselves in their documents. And, and I'm, mm. my first question is like, where's that? Where's that other stuff? And people are like, yeah. hang on, am I, am I allowed to bring it in? And my point of view on this is that, first of all, yes, you have to. And second, it's what makes you good at what you do. And then third, if you go to a place that doesn't want it, that's going to be a really difficult place to work. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Do you have a point of view on uh, bringing weirdness into work? Yes, I do. Because there's a real disconnect between what many companies say and in reality what they'll tolerate. Everyone, so many companies, particularly in advertising, particularly in 2020, say, you know, bring yourself to work. Very few people mean it. Uh, I know there's a, I know a lot of people are talking about neurodiversity at the moment, but what I've found over the last 15 years is that it all depends, it, it totally depends on your leader and your leaders. And if you have a leader who isn't tolerant of a variety of different personalities, i.e. actually gets quite scared if they're around people who are different to them, then everyone starts to behave in the same way, use the same language, uh, talk in the same way, you know, tell the same jokes. I've worked in companies where that's happened and it's really quite remarkable how eventually what you end up with when you have a bad leader is an army of same yeah. where being different in any way is, is considered bad. And from what I understand, don't ask me to quote where this comes from, but from yeah. what I understand, people who run established companies and, and people who are in those leadership roles, they tend to be more conservative, mm. psychologically speaking. And I, I, I'm trying to say it's science, but I can't source it. So, so it's, and I find that ironic in the advertising industry, yeah. that there are a lot of people, conservative people running the companies yep. and they can they. And often they get taught empathy, but then when they're interacting with you, you're like, you're not actually empathetic. You were taught to ask that question, but I can see your eyes <laughs> and 
guys are not empathetic guys. Oh, and then yeah. To, and then to, to stand up and say, bring yourself to work, but for them to be, you know, to live really normal, un, like not unusual lives, it's mm. there's hypocrisy there. It's weird to navigate. Yeah. Well, we have the company I'm at currently, which I won't name, but um, it's run by accountants because the the primary goal for particularly for major agencies who are getting rinsed left, right and centre and they have been done, that's been happening for the last kind of 10 years. All, all these companies need to do is grow. All they care about is growth. All they care about is upselling. And so they will have accountants and people who've been trained in the finance world running as CEOs, like running the, running the organization. And then it's really hard. They're still brilliant people. They're still very smart. Also personable people. It doesn't make them less personable. It just means they have been taught to do things a certain way and they believe that way works. And then it's so hard to infuse any kind of personality or culture or individuality. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, for a company to thrive, you need all of this. Uh, it's mm. not to say that you just need weird people because weird people might not pay the rent. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no one should ever let me near any kind of finance role. <laughs> <laughs> or any kind it, of it operations may- role, yeah. <laughs> you, you might leave the department in uh, a thread of haiku. <laughs> Let's uh, let's chat yeah. about the so you write for shots shots.net yes. and uh, I really I really love this piece you wrote a few months ago it's it's called don't tell me to talk teach them to listen mm. why mental health advertising needs to move on uh, mm. I've I've been I've been around like some of the mental health space with organizations since I was a teenager around community centers around uh, books and campaigns mm. and a, a lot of it you're right it's about especially for me, for men, you know, talk up, yeah, man up and talk, you know, that'll yeah. stop you from hurting yourself or from falling into really long depressive periods. Mm-hmm. Where did this point of view come from? I guess, I mean, personal experience, again, like I'll talk about that. I've always, it's always been one of my biggest pet peeves, the disconnect between what people say and how they behave. And I started to, so I've been through some very difficult times when I've, when I've really struggled mentally and I thought I was going mad and I thought I was breaking and I thought I, I was like, shit, is this it? Am I, am I going to feel like this forever? Cause I can't even think I can't even function. I've been through those periods and talking to someone was literally the hardest. It was almost impossible and I know from experience that placing that burden on somebody else, i.e. I think I'm going mad, what are you going to do about it, friend I've known for five years, is is almost impossible. It's just not a practical reality. And so that for the avatar, I think it's really dangerous for the advertising industry to take anything that actually really affects people's lives. I think it's that I think mental health advertising or, or companies aligning themselves with mental health causes or charities. I think it's so dangerous because we're doing it as lip service. Like we do everything as lip service. And when you're messing with people's heads, when you're telling them to talk, when there's a risk that the person that they talk to will just look at them with a blank face or not be equipped to, to deal with it. Oh, I just, I fear it makes me fearful. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, uh, we we can compare 
stories a little. Uh, I'll be deli- I'll be delicate, but it is difficult because once you come out of if you come out of your shell and you get mm. the stereotypical reactions which I've received, which is things like, "Well, I've never felt like that," or mm. that that's a really strange thing to feel, or "You must be broken," or "You're not feeling good about yourself. Why don't you follow through on that?" You know, like that. What's that yeah. going to do to it? Like for me, those things happen when I was a teenager mm-hmm. uh, from authority figures, and it's like. Oh, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go write my sad poetry and write my articles. And that's great because I love writing, but gosh, wouldn't it be great to be able to share this with somebody? So mm-hmm. I, I, I relate to it, for, you know, to your point in very, very deep ways. And people, we're just not taught how to listen. We're taught how to hold, how to have answers. <clears throat> and yeah. not necessarily, we don't, people don't always know how to uh, ask questions either, but listening and asking questions, you could do that for an hour with someone and they get mm-hmm. it all out. And that could mm-hmm. be all they need. That could be all they need, you know, not to be too simplistic. Yeah. But if you just listen to someone ask them like 10 questions, it gets you through 30 to 60 minutes of conversation. That person mm-hmm. might feel listened to for the first time in their lives. Yeah. I wish we all had training like at school. There's, there's two things. So, you know, what was really interesting. I wrote this article about mental health and mental health, mental health advertising and how it's problematic just to tell people to talk. And a doctor wrote a response. So a doctor, well, a psychologist rather, but he's still a doctor. He wrote an article in response, um, actually talking about how people can listen, the best way to listen. What he said is that human beings, regardless of your personality type, have two kind of things that were almost pre-programmed to do, solve problems and judge. (laughs) Um, uh, Solving problems is just a way, you know, that's just, that's how we feel like we're valuable. And judgment is just, well, it's an evolutionary thing, isn't it? You always, we judge everyone and we compare ourselves to people. And that's the, if someone hasn't been trained to listen, they're going to naturally default to, you tell them something, they'll, they'll tell you how to fix it sometimes you don't need that like you were saying sometimes you just need to speak and speak and speak and speak and speak and just know that person's actually taking it in and the second thing I think is a far greater risk uh is the judgment in that you tell someone I'm I'm feeling this I'm feeling that and they think you're weak yeah well they they can also talk back with ideas in a very absolute sense so for example grit Grit and resilience are similar ideas and very important. However, within what context? Because you could tell someone Mm -hmm. to be more resilient, yet they're getting abused in a relationship or in the office and being resilient through those things and just putting up with it. That's not good. So I I think some of these ideas, we we need to keep in mind that there's pros and cons, bright sides, shadow sides to all of them. So we're not talking in such simplistic ways to each other. Yeah. That's, it's really interesting, isn't it, with mental health advertising, you know, for so many years, the comparison has been made, uh, which is just like breaking your leg. If you break your leg, then you'd go and get it fixed. You do something about it. But it's not though. <laughs> it's not just like breaking your leg. And, and actually, I think some of these very simple, almost soundbitey things that have been pushed out since mental health has been on the kind of communications agenda don't help that much. All they do is give us sound bites and the human brain is far more complex than that. <laughs> um, what, what's, what's, your, what's been your experience with your own mental health? So I feel emotions stronger than most other people. That's just a, a thing that I have known since I was a child. So I, when I'm sad, I grieve. When I'm happy, I'm euphoric. When I'm 
uh, embarrassed I'm humiliated you know there's there's no I, it's 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 um always I constantly feel extremes and that's fine you can because you know sometimes it's amazing and I think that's I think that's what also makes me me and it makes me creative um but also what the 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 fallout of that is is that when I tip I plummet so there's only been a few occasions like in the last I would say in the last 15 years two or three times where my situation uh, I've been so 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 it's, it's always been work-related so stressed that I've plummeted and I'm so happy to talk about it because I don't think it makes me weak I don't think it makes me uh any less capable you know doing my job I think actually it makes me more honest I'd much rather be honest with people that this is how my brain works and I'm fully aware of how it works so there was yeah this once in Singapore that happened for a variety of different reasons and then also in London when I was kind of so only five years into my career where it just it all got too much and I think that I think it's called reactive depression so I don't get as a human being I don't get depressed as, as some others do but when everything gets too much bam floors me right. what, what do you put down your uh, ability to feel all the feelings to well it's, it's a combination of nature and nurture isn't it but it's been kind of it's been kind of acknowledged by therapists over the years so that's the that's the thing it's very very common it's very common I think it's called like emotional intensity disorder but I don't really want to call it a disorder it's just my brain you know I don't think anyone's brains are completely normal to be honest we're all just better or worse at hiding it (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. I mean uh, from a nurture point of view sometimes people develop these uh, responses because they're in an environment where there are a lot of emotions from a particular person in the household and they have to be wary of how they behave uh, because one particular person might have all the emotions in the household so they're continually processing what's going on in that person's mind in case they make a misstep, right? So that's like, Mm. I've heard that with a lot of people. Do Is that part of your story at all? No, I actually, so the reality is, um, so I'm the youngest uh, in my family there's me and my two sisters and there's a huge age gap between us like nine and ten years between me and my sisters um and so and I know this is this has actually been explained to me by the time my parents got to me <laughs> they were I think they were just a bit tired and bless them that's mm. fine but they had no tolerance for tantrums or you know any kind of playing up that a, that a toddler would have would have you know is normal behavior for a toddler mm. so what ended up happening was I was never taught how to have emotions properly which is which is a really interesting I'd never thought about it before until I was told this um mm. so if I cried a little bit I was bollocked oh is bollocked a word that translates across the oceans I was told off sure yeah. <laughs> if I had a if I had a little bit of emotion you know if I if I I got a, a little bit upset. It was the end of the world. You know, my parents would 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 uh, sort of punish it, not punish it. You know, properly. It just would. It wouldn't be considered a, a positive thing. If I was a little bit happy and energetic, that would also be kind of uh, reprimanded. So I was never actually taught what emotions were the right emotions. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. And I think it's quite common in youngest children. I really do think it is. They're a lot more unruly. They're a lot more kind of 
out there is what I've heard is the pattern. Interesting. Yeah. And, and then like from an advertising point of view, do you think there yeah. are any organizations that are in the space that you think they should be talking about listening and asking questions more than, uh, I'll use the word blame, more than blaming mm. the person going, going through the rough times? I tell not, you who's, oh, sorry. sorry. It's a, probably a misuse of the word blame, but you know what I mean. Oh, I know what you mean though. It's not a total misuse. It's, it's totally placing the onus on the sufferer for sure, which is quite irresponsible, I think. I tell you who's doing the best job, and I think it's because they've had to, is all the different male media owners, male magazines, male websites are having to up their game when it comes to mental health because their male, I guess, suicide rates are so shocking and mm-hmm you know, rapidly increasing as, as well as women's suicide rates are also increasing, but um, men's suicide rates are, are the most significant, well, particularly in the UK anyway. And so you've got, you have these amazing sites like Unilad and Lad Bible, who've historically just been like, like laddie culture, beers, 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 like tits, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that was how they became, you know, viral content was how they became popular. Now they're all doing, and I am prone to hyperbole, but they're doing the most amazing initiatives around male mental health. And that's where I've seen they do these lovely, I think it's Lad Bible, did a series of really lovely videos made by poets telling people how to listen. And it's just, you don't expect that kind of sensitive content from a lad's portal. Oh God, that's a retro word. From like a lad's mag. Um, Mm. But it's so, I just feel like it's a GQ is doing so much in the mental health space and they're learning that it isn't, you can't just do an ad. You have to make it in depth. You have to do research. It has to be editorial. It has to be sensitive. And so I feel like that's actually really positive. But who, I mean, how many people does it reach? That's the thing. It's not going to reach the same amount of people as a TV ad does or, you know, one of these viral, big viral videos. Have you had much uh, other feedback to the article? Don't tell me to talk, teach them to listen. And I've known, when I've posted things to the internet about mental health, usually it's, often it can just go over people's heads and people don't want to click yeah. on it in case other people see them. Otherwise yeah. it's supportive. And then there can be a minority who are like, they just get triggered by it. They're like, you don't know me. You don't know my mental health situation. And mm. I'm like, I don't, I don't think I said I did. <laughs> did you find any strange reactions to what you posted? What was quite interesting was that um, lots of people asked me if I was okay. And I was like, I'm fine. I'm, I'm totally, I'm to- this wasn't a cry for help. I'm honestly like, I couldn't be franker about this stuff. I don't care. And I, I'm not fussed by judgment, but so many people asked me if, or, or if I was all right and offered me support. And I was like, great. Actually, you know what? Thank you. That's lovely. Um, I got a lot of DMs from people as well saying, I agree. Um, I've noticed it too. I've been in a similar situation. One of the things that I've noticed is people don't want to, very few people will talk about this stuff, but really honestly talk about this publicly. Um, but that's fine. Like just lots of messages saying, yeah, like I, I get it. I totally get it. Which is, you know, again, there's been, I, I dread to think how much money millions, billions has been put into in bracket in inverted commas you know destigmatizing mental health mm-hmm. but it's obviously not working that much if people would rather dm than if it's still a very private conversation well people don't want to be seen as being weird and you know all about no. that because you write, write about it like <laughs> yeah. people are nervous 
people are nervously going to pay a price for being honest and yeah. for saying that they're a bit different. Yeah. And, and that, that's fair based on the way society currently works. Yep, 100%. Um, I hope it doesn't stay, stay that way. How would you like things to change? Oh, I think, I, I think it's listening. And, mm. you know, if I think about my little operating system and the stuff that I try to do, it's, it's having learn, learning self-talk more than talking to other people. Yeah. Uh, it's the self-talk I've, I have found useful, but not in a real preachy way. Sometimes you just got to stumble on a phrase. Like I found myself, <laughs> a year, I think it was a year or so ago, just saying to myself, I don't care. Because I, every time something pops up, like whether we're organizing a carpool for soccer or there's a, a logistics mm-hmm. thing with the kids or of, you know, doing a talk and something changes and I'm like, oh my God, how is that going to affect <clears throat> all these people? And what have I got to do? And I just yeah. have to say to myself, and I don't mean that I don't care, but I have to say to myself, I don't care. It's going to work out. Let's go. So I have to have these little mantras that I, that I use. Yeah. Uh, and then trying to live a more creative and artistic life. Like I would love to see art and creativity be way more connected to things like this, destigmatization mm-hmm. of mental health issues or just society in general. I mean, it's, I, I find, I think there's research on this is through art that we often reconnect mm-hmm. with who we are and what we're about. And often there's lots of theories that are both scientific and philosophical about like depression in particular, like one being that depression is anger uh, directed within. And so, well, how do you explore what you're angry about? How do you get in touch with what's going on inside? For a lot of people, it can be talk therapy. For others, it's yeah. And then just having a community to contribute to, whether that's online or offline. But I, I think there mm. needs to be some kind of off, offline interaction, some face-to-face time as well within that. Yeah. There was, um, I forget which country, one of the lovely Scandinavian countries, because it's always them that do the good stuff. I think it might have been Denmark. But I can, I'll, I'll find out and you can post it. I don't know. <clears throat> they did a, an amazing, the government did um, an amazing initiative called Culture Vitamins. And for people who were suffering with depression or anxiety or a variety of different kind of mental conditions, they were instead of being prescribed drugs, which is obviously the default, particularly in the UK, oh my God, is the default, they were prescribed cultural activities. <laughs> so they were given like free tickets to the theatre or, you know, the entry fee for some kind of creative workshop or something, which is just such a wonderful, just such an acknowledgement of all the stuff that you've just said, which is actually sometimes just giving your brain something else to focus on is the best therapy yeah. that you can have. Yeah, I just looked it up. It's called Culture Vitamins or Vitamins. It runs for yeah. ten, ran for 10 weeks and offered a variety of cultural activities averaging 2.5 workshops per week for participants with mild to moderate depression, stress, or anxiety. A lot of what we're talking about, if you're not mild to moderate in these symptoms, you, there's other stuff you probably need to explore. But yeah, yeah I think... I think art as a spectator and a creator, it just it connects you to the world in like a really mm. deep way. It's going to trigger the brain in different ways as well. So uh, yeah. uh, big advocate, big advocate for that. What country uh, was it? I can't, it's so annoying. Was, I can't yeah, it was Denmark. Ah, yes. They, they're so lovely, those countries. <laughs> they do all the they, good well, stuff in there. They have a lot of good ideas, but also there are a lot of problems in some of these countries. There's uh, the rise of nationalism and we'll, we'll, we'll just oh, leave no. it at that. Oh, oh, such a well. I know. Yeah, it's a global thing, isn't it? Oh man, yeah. it's because they have such good um, gender law, gender equality laws. That's why I have my mm-hmm. rose tinted. Yeah. Let's chat Dice, which is the Ooh. diversity and inclusion at conferences and events charter. What is it? Where did it come from? 
in a nutshell, um, one of the things that's obviously talked about a lot, particularly within the advertising space, is the proliferation of panels, which is male panels, um, but also the fact that, you know, across every industry, a stage at a conference is supposed to represent the industry itself and, and the diversity of an industry and very rarely does it. Um, so me and a few industry friends decided that we were so bored with calling it out and ranting about it and pissing, upsetting people because we've called it out and we decided to create a charter which is a 10-point charter based on equality law and protected characteristics which sets out how events organisers can make their lineups and their content and their marketing more inclusive and more diverse so that we can stop talking about it because it's a really boring thing to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you launched this a few weeks ago. What was the reception? Ah, yes. Yeah. So um, for the most part, it was really, really positive. And that's wonderful. When you work, because we worked um, on this for four months, there was a huge amount of consultancy with diversity groups to make sure that we were being, we weren't being heavy handed, we weren't being tokenistic, we were being sensitive to all the different communities that we uh, trying to represent <clears throat> the response was really positive from so many different groups and people across across the world however I did for some reason I got quite a lot of negativity via dms but also a couple of public comments from people who always it was the same type of person again and again and again, which I found really interesting and it also made me sad. Not, you know, it, I just, it, it disappointed me because the biggest pushback that we got were from white men of a certain age who said that it, it wasn't fair and diversity is going too far and it's not a problem anymore. Diversity was an issue five years ago. It's not a problem anymore. I don't care. This was one of the comments. I don't care who's on a stage. I don't care what they look like as long as they're saying interesting things. Mm. Um, and white, white men of a certain age, you're talking about older white men? <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely not like 18 year olds. God, how depressing would that be? Um, yeah, of a certain age. And I'm making a huge assumption there from their profile photos um but yeah what was the best comeback to you like what what was it was there a particular comment where you're like oh Uh, that that, i don't like it but that was well written (laughs) (laughs) well let me tell you there was one so this guy said oh this might be an unpopular opinion but um i who cares what they look like or how they sound as long as they say an interesting thing and i said to this guy respectfully because you're a white man, that you're affected less by inequality. Diversity is less of an issue for you. This guy says, oh, here we go, saying that my opinion is lesser because of the colour of my skin and the gender I was born with. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my God, you get it. (laughs) You get (laughs) it. I was like, shit, you feel it. Like this fight, he did not see the irony in what he was saying to me at all. And I was like, "This is this is a work of art. This is poetry that you just said to me." Um, it's it's interesting because <laughs> it's I like I think there are just these ideas that like, that hold tension with each other that we are going to do better by allowing that tension to exist. And the the, I, the first idea is that there has been historical structural inequity in the world through. <clears throat> yeah skin color, through access to resources and through gender and through various other things. Like that's true. 
And yeah. relative to the history of that, we are very new to change and we have a lot more to change because mm-hmm. if you believe in human rights and you believe in the idea that people uh, should have a fair shot at things, then there's still a long way to go. Yeah. And then this other idea that there's a whole generation of people who are scared of having their livelihoods taken away, who don't know what mm. to do with themselves, who might be a lot of the people going through depression and considering, you know, mm. following through on those things in in, mm. in, in unfortunate ways. Like, it's not that one or the other's right. It's just that there's such vitriol. And unfortunately, some of the extreme voices on in these ideas are the ones that get amplified the most. You know, like, yeah. t- talking about diversity is not talking about cancelling men until somebody who talks about diversity talks about cancelling men. Yeah, and even that's the, the best, uh, yeah. I'm so sorry I talked over you. I'm so sorry. And you just said something amazing. And all I wanted to do was tell you that what you just said was amazing. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, you're right. That's the, that's, the, that's the really unfortunate way in which um, the fight for equality is taken is that it's not anti-men. It's anti-male privilege. It's anti patriarchy but people take it very personally and i understand why they take it personally but there's that famous saying to the to the privileged equality feels like oppression yeah yeah. it it does um yeah well also there are uh you know people tweeting about cancelling men i mean there's a there's a book that's recommended (laughs) on your (laughs) amazon page (laughs) which talks about men being obsolete you know there was a a spate of articles that popped up about that a while ago uh and and it's like uh i get it and i can sort of read that stuff as a piece of art but like if you just lost a job you're not sure if you're going to get back in the industry if you're in your 40s and 50s you've got maybe kids going through college university that you have to support you've divorced you're on your second divorce you don't own your home Mm. Uh, and and yeah, you might have had a great career, but you haven't taken care of your finances. Like some of these fights are going to feel very personal. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I know exactly. What, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so, so maybe maybe there's a way for the push for diversity to somehow say that it's basically what we've just said that it's it's not about attacking the individuals it's about because mm. what we're here to do if you've got that abundance mentality is, is bring more people through yeah i wrote an article for the huffington post actually and they really sensationalized the title which pissed me off but fine the title was why we urgently need more feminist feel-good literature for men which is yeah. i did not say that <laughs> But that's fine. Um, I wrote a whole piece about how we need to start writing about feminism for men because a lot of feminist texts are quite alienating and they are quite polarizing. And unfortunately, whilst they shouldn't be, that is just the way of the world. And one of the things that really warms my heart is that so many men tell me that they've bought my book and they bought it for their daughters because they want their daughters to grow up to be powerful and care less about what people think. And they tell me that they've bought it because it didn't make them feel shit. <laughs> yeah. Because they don't really want to be made to feel shit. 
And I know that lots of men have done lots of shit things. Yeah. But also, there's a way, you know, there's a way to bring people on board. So that's, I totally agree with you. I would much rather, you know, inclusivity is about including men in the conversation as well. It's funny, as you were talking about the text thing, I was thinking about some, these are silly and flippant ideas, but I was like, give a man, a daughter, a single mom, and maybe an LGBTQ friend. Yeah. And all, all of a sudden that, that sort of fear that they have towards themselves, it will start to shift. And I know that's a silly flippant thought, but it will be a funny campaign. No. no, 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 it's not a silly flippant thought. It's, well, the reality is, you know, the place where I'm from in Essex um, <clears throat> was voted the unhappiest um, town in the UK about oh. five years ago and the Guardian called it the cesspit of the UK but it's it's traditionally it's it's a really unhappy place because it's incredibly working class the BAME population is like what it used to be like 5% you know it's um, it has these very old traditional values and so this town isn't moving as fast as you know London or some other parts of the country because people aren't exposed to that progressive thought. It's not even progressive thought to, to be gay, obviously, but because they're, they're living in a bubble, they have these really kind of tunnel vision views. So I think yeah. you're right. I think you're totally right. I don't think it is that flippant, really. Well, if you don't see difference, you're not going to embrace difference, are you? Yeah, yeah. Amy, where's the best place for people to find out about you and all your incredible projects and art on the internet? Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Kino81. That's where I, that's where I kind of live. I'm spending way too much time on Twitter at the moment. But yeah, that's, that's you know, the best, I think. Every time I see your Twitter handle, I'm like, oh, it reminds me of, I mean, I used to know a few graffiti artists back in the day and one of them wrote Kino. <laughs> Kino. And so every time I see it, I just hear this voice going, Kino, mate. <laughs> Kino 81. <laughs> well, deep, deep gravelly graffiti voice. <laughs> there's, um, obviously, there's a couple of football players. There was Robbie Keane and Roy yeah. Keane. Yeah. Uh, and people used to shout, chant their name like, Kino, Kino. Uh, football matches Robbie Keane used to play for Spurs and I went to a Spurs match like 10 years ago and hearing an entire stadium chant your surname because <laughs> they were chanting was literally the best feeling I've ever had in my life even though it had nothing uh, to do with me when you're going through a rough day you can just play that <laughs> yeah, I wish I'd recorded it I didn't I'm a fool but it's it, you know it's, it's in my memory I can play it back in my memory Love it. Well, Amy, thank you very much for joining me on Sweathead today. I can't wait to see your book, House of Weeds. I'll send it to uh, you. I'll send you a copy. Oh, no, I'll I'll buy a copy. I support you. Actually, yeah, if you could, if you could. I'll I'll buy a copy. Uh, Yeah, but thank you for joining me on Sweathead today. Really look forward to seeing what you do in the future. Oh, thank you. I've had such a lovely time. Thank you. Thanks, Amy.